Um, no, let me, be, let me move back to something serious. This, this passage obviously is talking about a, a person dealing with a, a kind of a spiritual depression, right? A low place. And so I want to, I want to be careful here. What we're going to see is how he responds and how he deals with his spiritual depression. And there's a lifting, there's a coming out of that. And so I believe that we, I can talk to you with authority and say, if you are in a place of woe, a place of, he'll describe it as the depths, I, I feel like I'm in a pit that I can't get out of and the weight is on me, uh, this passage tells you what to do. It tells you how to respond to that. But I want to be careful and not, not to act like this is everything, Right? These are important parts of responding to spiritual woe. But there's, there's something that is, that this is addressing really the spiritual aspect of that. But I do want to make sure that we understand the Bible also talks about physical aspects of depression and of sadness. And it's happened before that people have acted like we'll address the spiritual with the physical is irrelevant to the Bible, but that's not true. The Bible is clear that uh, even in other ailments, when Timothy, when his stomach hurts, Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach, right? And the, the implication is, I expect you to address your physical needs with physical ailments and your spiritual needs with spiritual uh, remedies, I mean. Now, we have to be careful, though. We don't We don't act like this is all physical or this is all spiritual, that we are one whole body. And so anytime that we face depression, whether it is from physical causes or spiritual causes, it's it's both, right? It's both. So we have to ask ourselves, if I'm in the depths of woe, regardless of why, how am I going to respond in worship? How do I feel low? And use this as a way to glorify God and to worship, to train my mind, to grow from this. How do I do this right on a spiritual level? So I just want to be clear, I'm not saying, and in fact, I would say the opposite, don't try to address this physically, right? If, you're, if it's because of lack of sleep, I'm not saying don't take a nap. Don't, you know, address your physical needs. If it's because you need medicine, medicine's fine. But I am saying that regardless of some of the other causes... We have to ask ourselves, spiritually, how do I respond when I'm in the depths of woe? And what we're going to see is, um, this passage is going to give us three major ways of doing that. Three, there's three kind of big sections, and those sections can be divided kind of like conversations. In the first one, he has a conversation, the psalmist has a conversation uh, with God, right? In the second one, he has, verses 5 and 6, it's the conversation he has with himself, in the third one, there's a conversation he has with other people, right? So he has these three conversations, and I think we could summarize the content of those, or at least the main idea of each of these, is in the first conversation with God, he is, a, a lot of it is talking about prayer, but the crux of the passage is he's looking back, right? He's looking at what God has already done. In the second, verses 5 and 6, he's looking forward, He's patiently waiting. Remember we saying, I wait for it with patience for what God has promised to do, what God is going to do. In the third part of the conversation, he becomes a person who looks out. And he looks and says, how can I address other people in woe? How can I offer the hope that God has given to me to other people? 
And I believe that part of his remedy for his despair is that he will be used by God to be part of their remedy. We'll see that. Maybe I'm showing too much of my cards here. But hopefully you'll see kind of the flow of where we're going. Uh, Let's pray and we'll walk through the passage. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we just sung a song uh, that was written originally before Jesus was even born and then written in German in uh, the 1500s and, and then we sang it today that we know that this feeling of despair is not something new to you. That for generations, uh, thousands of it, for millennium, you have been walking your chosen people through uh, the depths of woe and promising them full and total joy on the other side. And so I pray that you will give me uh, clarity of thought and presentation. I pray that you will give all of us uh, an eager expectation for what you've promised for us. And I pray that you'll, all give, you'll give us also a a motivation, a holy desire to share this and to call people into the hope that you offer. We thank you and we look forward to what you'll do through your word tonight. In your name I pray, amen. Let me start just by talking to you real quick. Every psalm, not every psalm, but most psalms before verse 1 have what's called a superscript. Uh, That's what we typically call it. It's the little small words that are right above it. Now, Sometimes you have big words that whatever your Bible publisher is puts as a title for it. Uh, my, my Bible says awaiting redemption. I don't know. Yours might say from the depths of woe. I, there are different Bible publishers give titles to songs, but under that, there's one that's actually inspired. It should be in everybody's Bible, and that says it's a song of ascent, or maybe a psalm of ascent. And so I want to talk for a second uh, a couple of things to point out is, I, I know several years ago I preached on Psalm 51. If you remember that, there was a big old subscript that told us who wrote the song, how to sing it, when it was written, and the circumstances. This one, we don't get hardly any information like that. We don't know. It doesn't tell us who wrote it. Right? I don't know. Did David write this? Did Solomon? Asaph is a guy who wrote a lot of psalms. It doesn't tell us. So when we talk about this psalm and we want to talk about what the author was thinking... We just say the psalmist, right? The, it just means the writer, the person who wrote the psalm, because it's anonymous. Uh, the only thing we know is that it is a psalm of ascent. And even that is a little bit fuzzy of what that means. There's 15 psalm of ascent. They all happen right together. They start at Psalm 120, and they go to Psalm 135, and there's 15 that are all called psalm of ascent. And we don't really even know fully why these 15, because they're not all talking about the exact same thing. Uh, most scholars agree that it seems to be that this was a collection of songs that the people of Israel sang as they ascended to the Temple Mount. So this was, they call these, sometimes people call these the pilgrim songs or the traveler songs. It was, imagine that you're getting your family together and you live somewhere in the greater Israel area and you're heading to Jerusalem and for the next 15 days, we have 15 songs, and we're going to flip through this songbook. And this was their traveling songs. It was designed to prepare their hearts for the worship of the God that they're going to serve there in Jerusalem. Um, Some people have noted that 
this psalm, though not all of the songs of ascent, have a sense of ascent in them. This particular one does. In addition to the fact that they were travelers, here he's starting in the depths of woe. And he's going to move to a place where he is able to be used by God. And there's an obvious optimism that, that grows as this passage develops. He's ascending out of here. And I believe that even though the psalm of ascent may not mean that all these songs have that feature, this one we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how is it that we deal with being in the depths of woe, and part of that is how do we move out of that, right? So let's look, let me start with verse 1, and I'll just say right off in verse 1, well, let me read the whole psalm. I don't think I've ever read the whole psalm yet, and then we'll come back. Let me read the whole thing. It's a song of ascents. It says, out of the depths I call to you, Yahweh, Lord, Right, it says, Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Yahweh, have you considered sins? Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for Yahweh. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its sins. So the very first thing to point out is here's a Christian writer, right, was pre-Christ, so, but a Jewish follower of God in right relationship with God who is writing this song from the depths of woe. And there's something that you may think it goes without saying, Christians can experience the depths of woe, right? It, I'm not sure it goes without saying because there is a theology that's kind of prevalent in our society that says if you really are walking with God, you won't suffer. You won't experience the depths of woe, right? Even There's some songs. I grew up singing a song. Uh, I bet you have too, that every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. But in reality, we have hard days. Right? There's days that I think, oh, I wish I could go back because it used to be so much better. I don't, this is not the life I want. And there is, that is a reality in the Christian life. Jesus told us to expect it. James told us to count it pure joy when we face trials. So when you hear a preacher say that if you had enough faith, you would be healthy, you would have all the money you need, you just have to go back and say, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if I walk with God, I'm going to walk through the depths of woes at times. And that I need to learn to worship him in the depths. Right? Worship isn't, getting, worship isn't being out of the depths. It's being in them and knowing how do I glorify God in the depths of woe. So it's just, I, I just think it's really important, especially given our society, to recognize This is what Christians go through. So let's look at the first thing he does when he's in the depths. The first thing he does is he talks to God. He's in the depths and he says, I call to you. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Right? Sounds like he's actually audibly talking to God. This is not a... Just a silent prayer. I'm, I'm not saying that silent prayers are bad, but this is a desperate 
crying out audibly, God, listen to me. I'm begging to you. I'm in a bad place, and I need you. And I want you to consider, possibly, that part of the reason that we even go through the depths of woe is so that we can learn to talk to God this way. Let me read to you. This is, uh, I got it out of, if you know, have you heard of Spurgeon? He has a commentary set on the Psalms, and I read it uh, some, sometimes for my devotions. I've, I've enjoyed it, though it can be heavy at times. Uh, but he has a section in there where he just quotes all these commentators, and one of them is James Vaughn, who said this. says, everybody prays, but very few cry. But of those who do cry to God, the majority would say, I owe it to the depths. I learned it there. He says, I often prayed, now he's talking about himself, he says, I often prayed before, but never until I was carried down very deep did I cry. Out of the depths. He said, it is well worthwhile to go into any depth to be taught to cry. I think that's a, a striking point. Perhaps part of the reason that we are in the depths is so that we can learn to cry. God, hear me. With serious labored prayer, God, hear my cry. You remember this song. I'm sure you remember this one. I'll read some of the lyrics. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. It says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Now, this next line, I want to, I don't love this one. He says, we should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, this guy's discouraged, and that's why he's praying. Right? So I don't want to act like that verse of that song the, the psalmist doesn't want us to feel guilty about walking through discouragement. That's part of the Christian experience. But he is saying that discouragement should never lead us to being insular and clammed out. That discouragement leads us to taking it to the Lord in prayer. So maybe if we in, interpret that line uh, charitably and say we should never be discouraged in a sense of I've closed myself off to God. Discouragement is supposed to teach us to cry out to God in prayer. The song keeps going. Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So the first thing I want to tell us, if we are suffering, if we're in the depths of woe, be like the psalmist and take it to the Lord in prayer. Learn to cry out. God, I'm not right inside. I'm miserable inside. And I know that you are the one who can deal with it. So I'm talking to you about it. So let's say you agree with that. Okay, fine, I want to talk to God. What do you say? I want to talk to God, but what do I say to him? Verses 3 and 4 tell us what the psalmist says. He says, God, if you considered sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may also be revered. It's, it's kind of a, a two-part thing. Right? In the first part, he reflects on his sin. In the second part, he reflects on God's forgiveness. 
In the first part, he's talking about his helplessness. And then on the second part, he's remembering, but God, you helped me. I think this is important. This, these two verses are important on two levels. One, theologically. We're going to learn something important theologically. But I also want us to remember this is not a theology lesson he's going through. This is practical. If anything, it maybe it's practical theology. This is how I'm working through my heart. But let me start by talking just theologically what's going on. Because if we don't understand it on a theological level, it really won't make sense why this works practically. So theologically, what is he saying? He's starting, uh, really he's going through two big doctrines. And the first doctrine, uh, during the time of the Reformation when Martin Luther wrote this hymn, it was called the doctrine of total depravity. He's just saying, I know that we are all sinful, utterly sinful, without any hope of standing right before God. Right? These are, we get this from Romans 3.23, which will be at very soon in the morning. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8. Anybody who says he has not sinned is a liar and is deceiving himself, right? The, the theology that he's coming back to is the premise that we, have, we all are sinful. And because of that sin, that we have no hope of standing before God. Romans, Paul will say, because of our sin, we have earned death. The wages of sin is death. We have no hope. The second theological point he turns to in verse 4, though, in the Reformation, in Martin Luther's day, it would have been called sola gratia, or by grace alone, right? Total depravity, I had no hope. But by your free grace alone, I can be forgiven. If it was based on me, too much sin, I couldn't stand before you. But you offer forgiveness, and he tells us why. It's actually, I guess, maybe another point in the Reformation, sola dea gloria, for the glory of God alone. Why does God offer forgiveness? So that he might be revered. Maybe your translation says, so he might be feared. Why is God offering forgiveness? For his glory. God's saying, I'm not doing this because you're lovable or forgivable. Right? Mike, Sue might think you're a lovable guy, but God does not. He thinks you don't have any right to stand in front of him, but he will love you in spite of that. Not because you've earned it, but because his grace alone for his glory alone. That's the theological underpinnings. The question is, why does that help me in a time of depth? Why does the theology of how I'm saved carry me through when my spirit is burdened and weak? I think there's several answers to this. One is it reminds me that I'm not going to get out of this pit on my own. It reminds me that I have to depend on God. There's a, there's a passage in Deuteronomy where God's talking about his judgment of his people. And then in verse, it's chapter 32, verse 36, it says, The Lord will indeed vindicate his people... And he will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone. I'm going to help them, 
I'm going to bring them out of this, but not until they learn that I'm the one that brings them out, not that they're going to bring themselves out. Right? I'm going to wait until their strength is gone. I've actually I heard a story about a boy who was at, at a lake. He was swimming. He was a young, I think, five or six, and he began to drown. He was out in the lake, and he's throwing his arms, and he's crying, help, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And the mom is on the shore there, on the sand watching, and she says, somebody help my son. And beside her was this 18-year-old boy who runs out, he dives in, and he swims out, and he gets to about arm's length from the drowning boy, and then he just stands there. And the boy's flailing his arms, and, he's, and finally the boy just kind of lets his arms down and begins to sink. And at that point, the 18-year-old reaches out, and he grabs the boy, put him up on his shoulder, and walked him back out of the water. The mom sees the guy and says, what? I'm so thankful that you saved my son, but man, why'd you stretch it out like that? That was killing me to watch that. And he says, if I didn't wait, he would have taken us both down. It, it had to happen on my strength, but not on his. He, I had to wait until his strength was spent. It's similar to what's going on in the gospel. Salvation happens in our moments of despair because those are the places where we recognize, I just don't have the strength. I need one who is strong. And that's when we recognize that God is glorious. So I say that it helps us because we remember that my hope isn't in me anyway. Yeah, I'm in despair, but my hope is on the one who can save me when I don't have any strength anyway. I think this passage also reminds me I have hope here because God has actually already defeated the cause of my despair. The cause of my despair is sin, and God's already pronounced forgiveness on me. Right? I've already been forgiven of the cause of my despair so that I know that ultimately the problem has already been defeated. And that brings me hope, encouragement. I wrote another reason, personally, that it has helped me. Um, I'll, I'll share some of the details of it because it, it's embarrassing. But as a seminary student, um, this is, I guess, 10, 12 years ago now, which tells you how long ago I started seminary. It, it took me a long time to finish. You go about this. You, you finish about as quickly as how smart you are. So if you're really not that smart, it takes you a long time. But I was in there for a long time. And so early on, I noticed a sin pattern in my life that, to be honest, is, it's just embarrassing to talk about. Um, but it discouraged me pretty greatly to the point that I had gotten very close to quitting. And I just said, a guy like me can't serve. I can't, I can't be a pastor for sure. Um, Tanner, my brother-in-law, was also my roommate at the time, and we weren't brother-in-laws then, we were just friends, but I talked to him about it. And what he reminded me is, the gospel is not that you are so good that God has forgiven you. The gospel is that because you need him, he has come to your rescue now, the cool thing is the day after that conversation, we show up to church and we have communion. And I remembered in that time that God's already paid for this. God's already delivered me from this sin. The problem is simply that I need to accept what he's already done for me. 
That was a, a watershed moment in my life, one that actually began my process of getting out of that sin completely. But two, it was a watershed moment that being in the sin doesn't make God impotent in any way. The fact that I sin does not mean that God is now thinking, what can I do with Nathaniel? I can't save him. His sins are too great for him. My sins have always been too great for me, but have never been too great for him. What an encouragement that when I failed, the God who was able to save me at first is able to save me at last. I don't have to be in despair as I walk and grow out of my sin because I know that God saved me in spite of. Yeah, just I'm kind of going off on a rabbit trail. I didn't mean to spend so much time here, but let me, let me say this one last thing before we move on. I wonder if any of you know someone who said, one day I need to, I, I need to get right with God, but I just I want to get my life right first. Right? I mean, have you heard people say, I, I have, that I want, man, I should show up to church, but I can't, I can't until I get some things fixed. And the problem with that is it completely misunderstands what the gospel is altogether. Oh, man. You, if, if God were to list your sins, you would never be able to stand. Your life would never be right enough to say, okay, God, I'm ready to be your servant now. The whole point is that God is trying to glorify himself by showing that he can forgive somebody like you who doesn't have his life together. Right? The fact that you're in despair is evidence that God saves weak people. That's a joy. And it is completely backwards. When somebody says, I'll get my life right first. God says, no, the whole reason I came is because I want to be the one to get your life right. So let me move forward. He started by talking to God and really by, in his conversation with God, he was looking back at what God's already done for him. But in verses 5 and 6, his conversation changes. I believe he's talking to himself and here he's looking forward. Five and six, he says, I wait for Yahweh. I wait. I put my hope in his word. I'm waiting for the Lord more than a watchman watches for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. I think the basic message of this is pretty easy to understand. He's expecting God to do something great. Now, God's already done something great, but he's still waiting for something else. And there's two kind of big qualities that are going on. There's this expectation And there's also this eagerness, right? It's like a watchman in the night who is watching the horizon, and he watching the horizon, and he knows. First off, I expect that the sun's coming up, and two, I can't wait till it comes up. Right? There's this more than the watchman is constantly searching the horizon for the sun. He says, "It's as sure God's future salvation is as sure as the sun will rise," and I watch it both with expectation and with eagerness, knowing that God's going to do his part. So let me point out a couple things about what I think are the relationship between this and the relationship between the first four verses, right? The looking forward is connected to the looking back in a couple ways. The first thing is it's connected because the looking back is the grounds for his faith as he looks forward. Let me say that again to make sure it's clear. Looking back 
is the grounds on which we can look forward. Right, he, right now, not everything is the way he wants it to be, but he knows God's already started this work that's in me, and therefore I'm confident that he can complete it. He knows that my salvation has already happened, my justification has already happened, so I can be confident that my sanctification is on its way. Let me read for you out of Romans 8. It says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he also not grant us everything? If God has already forgiven me to the point of sparing his own son for me, can I not confidently believe that he'll take care of me now too? That he'll lead me out of this pit now as well? He's already defeated sin and in all of its penalty, can I not also believe that he's going to lead me out of the power of the sin, out of the depression that is brought, out of the sadness? Can I not expect that there's a greater day ahead? This church sings tons of songs about this day we're looking forward to, right? Whether it be songs like I'll Fly Away or I'm Looking to Glory Land, uh, this, this idea uh, at Easter, what a difference the third day makes. And we talk about how I was in sin, but I'm, I'm coming out of this, that, that there's this progress out of this. We believe that God's salvation of me now is guaranteeing a future that is better, but progressively so. I want, to, uh, I want to try to work through this a little bit more because it's important that we recognize that my justification is set and done, that I am right with God now, that the penalty of sin has been paid. If I'm a Christian, God has already delivered me from the penalty of my sin. But the Christian life is one in which the sorrows of a sinful world are being used in our life to bring us out of sin in a progressive future way as well. Uh, we call that sanctification, right? Uh, do you remember James 1? Consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Don't you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance? Perseverance produces character, and character has to complete its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, for the believer, in a sense, they're not lacking anything. I have the full righteousness of God, Jesus Christ, on my behalf. I'm righteous on his account. I've been completely forgiven. If I were to die today, I would immediately be ushered into heaven without sin on my account. Because Jesus has paid it all. But we also simultaneously know that God is leading me out experientially of the power of, the experience of sin in this life. And he's promising a day in which sin will be completely gone. And so James tells us, endure it believing that God is purposing it to bring you out of the effects of sin. 
believe that the trials and tribulations of this earth, God is intentionally using them in your life to bring about a better day, to bring about a future that is better than your present. There's a, you might know John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, there's another song that he wrote called I Asked the Lord. Can I listen to this a lot on our road trips? I, it's one of my favorite songs. Uh, because it's a bit of a story. I like story kind of songs. It, it leads you through a process. It's long, but I want to read the whole song to you. Uh, John Newton wrote, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his faith. His faith. T'was he, right? It's God who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he would answer my request and by his love's constraining power to subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. He says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. It says, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. John Newton recognized that our despair is often part of God's strategy for getting rid of the sin in our heart that is actually even causing this despair. Right? When God brings despair in our lives, allows despair and woe and sorrow in our lives, that God is not, this is what we say at Celebrate Recovery, God will not waste this hurt. Right? God is using this. And so that's why he can say, in my despair, in the depths of woe, I can look out like a watchman who watches for the morning, knowing in confidence God is bringing a better day through this. I hope that day is literally tomorrow. But I know that day is tomorrow. I know 100% that God is not wasting this. The despair I feel is God's strategy to make me like him and love him and find my all in him. And so I can walk through suffering and woe and sorrows. I can walk through the depths with an eager expectation now, again, I don't want to go and make you think that that doesn't mean that this, this isn't suffering, right? In no way am I trying to imply that it's not really bad because good is coming. Of course it's bad, or it couldn't do its job. Let, let me throw one more thing in here, if you don't mind. I'm, I'm, watch, I'm hoping to do a, a Sunday school class with some of the uh, kind of the younger adults or middle-aged adults. I don't know how old you are in your 30s or so. Um, 
And I've been preparing, I've been preemptively studying through some apologetics, uh, questions that people have about their faith. And one of the issues that some people raise is if God were really loving, why does he let suffering in the world? Right? How do you expect me to believe in a God that you says loves me and he lets me walk through this? And the Bible has some answers for that. We've already looked at some of those. But I, I want to bring up one more answer to that that I think is really astounding. The truth is that God obviously has the power to get rid of all suffering, right? And he chooses not to. And, and we know some of the reasons. We don't know all the reasons. But the Bible doesn't give us any room to question whether or not that all of this suffering is done and allowed in love. And here's what proves it. Because when God decided to get us out of suffering, he didn't do that by ending suffering. He did it by taking suffering on himself. Right? What he did to take care of our suffering is he said, I will send my son to suffer. My son will die in your place. God's solution to our suffering was his suffering. He demonstrated his love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's why we can be confident that this isn't the end of the story, right? If this is the suffering I'm going through right now were all that there was, if that was the end of the story, it wouldn't make any sense for either God not to say, I'll just get rid of it. It's purposeless. But even more than that, if, if that's the end, why send your son to suffer and die? If it's not because you believe that suffering is bringing about a greater reward. Now, the Bible's full of Jesus' reward for suffering for us, our reward for enduring and suffering. But just on a philosophical level, if God didn't have a plan for suffering and for these depths of woe, the feeling that Jesus said when he was on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? If he didn't have a plan for this, you can guarantee he wouldn't have stepped into it himself. So the watchman says, or so the psalmist says, I'm going to watch for that better day, and I'm going to expect it eagerly. I'm going to put my hope, my faith, my trust, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it the same way a watchman waits for the morning. Let's move to the last thing. The the person in the depths of woe needs to talk to God, and, and in that talking, they need to look back at what he's already done, right? They need to talk to themselves. They need to challenge their own doubts. They need to challenge their own uh, fears and preach a sermon to themselves about what God is going to do. But the third thing that he does is he preaches to others. He talks to others. Now, I, if he was looking back, if he was looking forward, now he's looking out, and he's trying to invite others into the hope that he's found in Christ. He says in 7 and 8, Israel, like the people around me, put your hope in the Lord. For there is faithful love with the Lord. And with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its sin. He's walked through the depths. And God has, I don't know if he's fully delivered him out of the depths yet. There seems to be some deliverance here, but enough that he could say, Israel, God has already forgiven my sin, and he's already leading me through here. Come meet the God who redeems us, 
The one who is setting me free from my woe and my despair can set you free from your woe and your despair. Right? It seems that the third kind of step in dealing with his despair is being used by God to help others deal with their despair. How am I going to deal with it? I'm going to remember God's already set me free. God's promised a future in which he will fully set me free. And right now, he can use me to help set others free. What a God. I started in these depths of woe, feeling that the world is on my shoulders. And now, I'm walking out into the world and inviting people to meet the God who will redeem them and set them free from all of their sins and sorrows. Pastor Johnny mentions this. Maybe this is your... If you had a central theme to your ministry, this might be it, that we never experience our full joy in the ministry until we're being used by God as he's gifted us, right? That you can't... You can't enjoy God fully until you are being used by God, right? That part of our duty to enjoy God is telling others that there is a God who loved me so much that he's willing to use me to help you. And that brings me joy. That lifts me from the pit. One of the worst things we can do when we are in a pit of despair is to become so insulated that we, need it. we don't talk to God, we don't really talk to ourselves, and we certainly aren't talking to others. Because it's trust. Trust me, I'm using this despair in your life to help you and to cause you or to equip you to help others. God's not wasting the hurt, so you don't waste the hurt. I love this psalm. I love this psalm because it reminds me that God is a God of forgiveness. Um, We sing the song from Psalm 3 that he's the lifter of my head. He's the one that can bring me out of depths of despair, the one that can bring me out of suffering. And in this psalm, we don't get every answer. We certainly don't get every answer for why our suffering is going on. But we do get this sense of guarantee. God's not wasting it. Trust him. Wait for him. Live with this expectation that there's a better day. And act on that expectation by inviting people to wait with you, to look eagerly for the return of Christ that will set everything right. So here's what I want to do. I want to close in prayer. But before that, I want to ask you just to to think specifically, how do you apply this passage? I'll, I'll try to help. I think there's, there's a lot of ways, but I'll try to help give us a couple ideas. One is, let's just be honest. Rayford Road is a church that is suffering right now, uh, especially on a health level, right? It, it just, I don't know, it, it seems heavier than, than times that I've lived before. The, the amount of everything from Mary and Marcel and Robert it's Bridget, there's suffering, physical suffering going on right now, and it weighs on the people who are suffering, but it's not just on the people who are suffering. Nancy, I wonder how many tears you've cried over your family who you love. 
And so how do we apply the woe that comes from living in a world where sin has wrecked it so much that it wrecks our bodies and our families' bodies and the people that we love? Go back to the gospel. Remind yourself that God's already defeated sin. He's already forgiven us, and he's promised a better day. I hope and I'm waiting for a better days tomorrow, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that this is not the end. This life is not the end. A better day is coming. And so I'm waiting for that. I'm eagerly watching for a day in which I, we won't deal with this anymore. Because God's promise, I'm going to set you free. Preach to yourself. Doubt your doubts. Put your faith in the one who promised, I'm bringing something better. Let me give you another way I think would help to apply this passage. To recognize that some of our despair is brought by our own willingness to live in sin. That's why he says, if if you were to keep a record of my sins, I couldn't stand before you. Confess those sins, just like he did. Repent and find forgiveness. Don't live in rebellion to God, because you know what that brings. Let me ask you to consider one more thing. If you want to experience the joy of your salvation, to be lifted from the depths, ask yourself, God, how are you going to use me to help lift someone else? Who do you know that's suffering? How can you put your arm around them? Tell them, God loves you. God loves me. And I know he loves you too. And I want you to enjoy him the way I enjoy him. Who can you put your arm around? Care for them. We can't. One of the uh, myths that I think politics brings on us is that there's some magic fix where we can, on a big system level, help everybody get out of these depths of woe. If we could fix our tax system or we could fix our welfare system, somehow everybody's life would be great. It's not true. If people are going to get out of the depths of woe, it's because you and I, as messengers of God, step into their lives and put our arm around them and beg them, come meet the God who can set you free. It's going to take us getting involved in people's lives. So apply this passage by asking God to show you, who can I encourage? Who can I get in? I, myself, who have walked in woe before, maybe not the same woe. I have never walked the kind of woe that I know. For instance, Greg is walking right now. But I serve a God who, if he can set me free from woe, he can set Greg free from woe. If he's promised that he'll bring a better day for me, he'll bring a better day for Greg. I know this. And so I don't have to offer him me. I'm offering him the God who will set him free from all his sins and sorrows. Let me pray, and we'll, we'll stand and sing. Dear Lord.